So when did you first learn about incarceration? And I first learned about incarceration probably when I was in grade school. And specifically, it touched me when I was in high school. I had a friend who killed his auntie and just learning through the process that he had to go and him being locked up. Well, for 10-year-old Yusuf Smith, his first encounter was on the way to school. Yusuf was in fourth grade. He was on the school bus, got into an argument with another kid. The bus driver warns them to knock it off. They don't. The argument turns into a fight. The fight becomes physical. The bus driver calls the cops. The bus gets pulled over. The cops come on board. And right there on the bus, in front of his fourth grade class, the cops handcuff 10-year-old Yusuf and take him to jail for fighting on the bus. To you and I, such action might sound extreme, but not to Yusuf. And that's because Yusuf lives in the country with the highest incarceration rate in the world. And that country? It's the United States of America. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community. Today's episode is where the gospel meets incarceration. Now, later on in the season, we'll be exploring the topic of mass incarceration. But before we do that, we need to lay some groundwork. So today we're going to look at three stages of incarceration, how you get in, what life looks like inside, and how life has changed should you get out. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. So just a few weeks earlier, the beginning of May, the House Judiciary Committee voted 25 to 5 to approve a new prison reform bill. And even those who are appropriately in confinement should be given the opportunity at a second chance in life. This bill, called the First Step Act, would offer possibilities for early release as well as improve conditions for pregnant inmates. And many evangelicals are starting to get on board with prison reform. This new bill was backed by Franklin Graham, Family Research Council President Tony Perkins, and even Trump's own spiritual advisor, Paula White. So when it comes to prison reform and incarceration in general, what is our role as Christians? And that's where Christians and people in general seem to get hung up. They seem to live in between this tension of do we love them, do we move close to them, or do we do, as Romans 13 say, just execute justice and come down with a hard hand? And we tend to want to emphasize one or the other. So our posture towards prisoners is either extremely sympathetic or it's hard and cold. So which one's right? Well, thankfully, Jesus was not silent on this issue. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 25, Jesus describes the final judgment. And he likens it to a shepherd who separates his flock into two categories, the sheep and the goats. And in the story, the distinguishing factor between the two is not how you or I would tell a sheep from a goat. We know the difference by physical appearance, but Jesus, he knows the difference by character. So check it. In verse 33, he says, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then Jesus uses the same criteria for the goats, except 
they did not do these things. Now, again, some people can get hung up at this point in the passage. I've heard people argue that Jesus is referring to how we treat fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And honestly, contextually, that's there. But when we look at the whole of Scripture, when we look at all of what the Bible has to say, this principle of moving towards a person who's in prison, whether they're in the body of Christ or out, is definitely there. So you get these Christians that think things like, hey, that guy that's in prison who's doing time for rape, he does not deserve my kindness. And this is where things get tricky. We don't want to gloss over crimes. We don't want to gloss over very real, very awful things done to other people. Criminals are locked up for a reason. But the difference between the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25 is the sheep were near those in need. And unfortunately for many of us, especially middle class folks like myself, we just aren't near the effects of prison. So today, we're getting near. And to do that, we're going to hear from Yusuf, the 10-year-old kid who got arrested on a school bus. And even though he's no longer 10 years old, he is still very near to the reality of incarceration. Right. I mean, here's how Yusuf describes the connection between his childhood and incarceration. When I was coming up, it was a good thing to go to jail. Like, no one told us, like, don't go to jail. It's not cool. It's not good. Like, going to jail and prison back then was the thing to do. So Yusuf grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And just like I might expect my kids to go to college, Yusuf was actually almost expected to get locked up. Nothing new to anyone in my environment. It's like, okay, it happens. Everyone gets shot or robbed or sent to prison. Or, like, my mother was, was a drug addict, and uh, she, like, used to actually just train us to commit crimes. Like, she would take us to do stuff with her. <laughs> it's just part of it. I mean, in fact, ever since eighth grade, Yusuf's been in and out of jail so many times that he's lost count. It's just kind of not that big of a deal to him. Yeah, it's a cycle. It'll be like, I know in 30 days I'll get back out. I just don't have to go to school for a month. So it's like when you play Monopoly and you go straight to jail. Ah, oh, it sucks. But I get back out. So, I mean, all these times that Yusuf is going to jail, it's for gun possession. It's for violating his probation. But again, these things are just normal things. It's just expected that this cycle is just going to go on and on. A lot of people from the outside just look in and they just think that this is the way people just want to live. But when you feel trapped, when you're hopeless, when it's kind of been passed on generation to generation, you resort to the extreme. You know, wealthy people, they need to get out of a situation and make themselves feel better. They hop on a plane and they escape and they go to an island. Uh, people who are impoverished and are poor and who are dealing with just generational brokenness in this way, um, you deal with that differently. Well, the cycle of going in and out of jail continues to be part of Yusuf's life. And then when he's 19, everything changes because this time he's not going to be getting back out in 30 days. So Yusuf, he's 19 years old now, and all his previous jail time had been for possession of guns or for violating probation. But now he and some friends, they make this trip to Kentucky. And while they're there, Yusuf commits armed robbery. The guy who I had robbed ended up calling the police on me after my co-defendant had pistol whipped his girlfriend. That's like really hard and horrible. Let's be clear here. You know, that's wrong. I, I might even use the word, you know, hey, like, hey, that's sinful. Like, that's wrong. That's not the way you treat other people. And if you do those crimes, you do deserve punishment. Yeah, so it's a pretty significant crime. And remember, like, Yusuf's from Tennessee, and this was the first time that he'd been to Kentucky. And while he's in custody waiting for his court date, 
He realizes that the Kentucky criminal justice system and the Tennessee criminal justice system, they do not work in the same way. So when the police caught us in Tennessee, they extradited us back to Kentucky. And I get locked up and I'm looking for like a bondsman's number on the, on the walls or something, but there's no bondsman's in Kentucky. And I'm like, what, what, what is that? They said, you're in the Commonwealth. I'm like, what is the Commonwealth? Okay, so Jamal, help me out. So he said he's looking for what up on the wall? No, he's looking for the number of a bondsman. A bondsman is a person who's recognized in a state for helping to help people reach bail. So they have those in Tennessee, but in Kentucky, they don't. And that's an important thing to note when we talk about incarceration, is that incarceration in our country doesn't run on one all-encompassing system. Each state, each politician, each judge has their own set of ideas. And what's happening in one state may not be what's happening in another. Incarceration is always localized before it's nationalized. Oh, okay. So no bondsman means that Yusuf has to come up with the bond money himself. Okay. So then on his court date, he finally receives his sentence. It was a 10-year sentence, but at 20%, which means after 20% of my of 10 years, which was two years, I went up for parole. Now, this is the part of our justice system that most people are familiar with, the final courtroom cases that we see every day on the news. Yeah, but people really don't see that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like, there's a whole lot more to the process that goes into incarceration. Okay, so speaking of that process, I think we should go ahead and just take a look at that now. And to help us with that, we actually talk to a judge. Okay, my name is Amber Wolf, and I am a district court judge in Jefferson County, Kentucky. So this is Amber, and she is actually married to my cousin. And while it might seem simple on the surface, you commit a crime, you do your time. According to Amber, it's actually a bit more nuanced than that. You know, it's a, it's a hard thing to define. Yes, the law is the law, and it is in black and white. But there are a lot of intricacies to it. You know, you can't just have an ATM machine where you stick your case in and have it spit out what your sentence is. Because, you know, if the law was just the law and that was black and white, then that would be all we would need. So I asked Amber to walk me from start to finish through the process of becoming incarcerated. And it can basically be boiled down to eight stages. So here we go. Stage one, you are perceived to commit a crime and you get arrested. At this stage, there's some discretion on the part of the police officer. Some acts are obviously criminal, while others just may depend more on interpretation. Man, I wish we can go more into that and talk about racial profiling and other things that that go into that. But I think that's for another episode. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, We'll have to get to that one eventually. Uh, Stage two, you have a pretrial. Okay, so every single person that's arrested for any crime will go to the jail. They'll be booked, and then there's pretrial services that will interview them. They're not going to ask them incriminating things about their case. They're asking them if they have a place to live, if they have a surety, if they can post bond. They do that interview, but they also look at their criminal record, and then they create a score. Now, at stage three, pretrial services decide whether you should be released or held based on your score. And that score is basically telling two things, flight risk and endangerment level. In fact, we now have something called the administrative release, which on certain crimes, low-level, nonviolent offenses, if they score low or even moderate on the flight risk level and the danger to society level, they're going to be released automatically without ever being presented to a judge. So flight risk has to do with your likelihood to show or not to show up to your court date. And many people have outstanding bench warrants, meaning that they've already missed previous court dates. And if that's the case, you're more likely to be held and forced to attend court. 
So if you are held and you're going to continue forward in the system, then you progress to stage four. And in that case, you're actually presented to a judge over the phone. Three times a day, 6 a.m., 12.30, and then at 9.30 at night, everyone that's arrested will be presented to a judge, an on-call judge. Today, that's me. The pretrial services will call the judge and list every person that's been arrested, what their crime was, alleged crime, and they'll tell us what their score is, and we have to decide what their bond is going to be. And then just like stage three, stage five, the judge decides whether each person should be released or held on bond. If they are released from custody, they'll be given somewhat like a citation. It's like a piece of paper that tells them what their conditions are, like no drugs or alcohol, don't possess a firearm. And so they'll hopefully come back to court on their arraignment date if they're released. And if they're not released, they go to arraignment court in the jail the following day, usually. So stage six is arraignment court. And whether you've been released from custody at any of these stages or not, everyone is expected to go to their arraignment court date. So if you don't show up, your flight risk score essentially goes up. So here, a new judge, so different than the one who received the phone calls, looks over your case, releases you or keeps you and gives you a new court date. In stage eight, it's your actual court date. So this is what we often see on TV with lawyers and prosecutors finally entering the picture. If they're without a lawyer, so pro se, they would get a chance to talk to the prosecutor and the prosecutor may make them an offer or may say we need to pass this case and bring in more witnesses or something like that. And then, you know, if they make them an offer, it's up to them whether they want to accept it. And again, they can come up and say, I don't, I'm not sure about this. I need an attorney and we can give them another court date so they can come back with an attorney or we can assess them for a public defender. So there's this old New Yorker cartoon, and in the cartoon, there's an attorney who's sitting at their desk, sort of leaned over with a look of fascination, talking to the client in the room. The caption from the lawyer says, that's a fascinating case you have, Mr. Smith. The question is, how much justice can you afford? And that's always really the question. And I think a lot of people in just regular society miss that. They see people locked up, and it's like, it's not a mistake that the poor are the people who normally get locked up. And a lot of times because they can't afford a good lawyer or they're just so hopeless going through the process that they miss dates and other things. Yeah, so justice really is in this country about what you can afford. And there's a reason why celebrities go and get the best lawyers. You don't see them just like, oh, let's cut corners here, right? Yeah, you don't ever see any like rich folks going, you know, like, yeah, you know what? I'll forego my own private counsel and I'll just take the public defender. That's right, they're like, heck no, he got OJ off, he can get me off. And so after all eight of these stages, now at this final stage, the case is either resolved, rescheduled, or sent to a higher court. But by that time, the case has already been touched by multiple hands. you got the police officer who made the initial arrest, the pretrial services, the on-call judge, and the arraignment court judge. So trials we see in the news, man, that's only a small fraction of the case as a whole. The judicial system is a many-layered beast. So the process of being incarcerated is only one of these layers that we're talking about, because once you get incarcerated, life in prison, that is a whole other matter. It's like going to a new country and not knowing nothing. Like you're just just trying to figure out what's going on because it's a different lingo going on, different phrases, different people go about things, different ways. Coming up, Yusuf's life in prison and more importantly, who he met there. We'll be right back. Hi. This is Jessica from Knoxville, Tennessee. I made an impact on people who've been incarcerated by serving for a year with Love Thy Neighborhood. 
To experience your social justice internship and Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Today's episode is where the gospel meets incarceration. We've been following the story of Yusuf, who has committed armed robbery and is now sentenced to 10 years in prison. Okay, so Jamal, walk me through. What does a typical day look like for you? Man, a typical day looks like for me, I get up in the morning, help my wife get the kids ready for school, go to work, come home, love on her, love on them babies, watch some ESPN, and try to close the night off with some jazz and a And some rest. Right. But then in prison, we know that, you know, none of those typical things are available to folks, that their whole lifestyle changes. And just like their lifestyle changes, the other thing that changes is the way that things operate state to state. Yusuf had a brother who was in prison in Tennessee, and he'd heard from his brother that you could use your cell phone to communicate with the outside world. So Yusuf thought, that'll be all right. That won't make things too bad. Well, then he found out that in Kentucky, cell phones were not going to be an option. Because I'm like, man, I'm I, I missing cell phones. He's writing me letters telling me I heard this CD and heard this rapper's new mixtape. And I'm like, man, I'm missing all that. I was like, hold on. But then there's other things, like more simpler things, that we don't even think about missing. I miss going to the refrigerator, opening up the door, knowing I ain't want to get nothing. You know how you open the refrigerator door and don't even really want nothing? Just like, why did I open this? Yeah, I just miss doing stuff like that. And in prison, there's there's no dresser with all your clothes in it. You're not getting up in the middle of the night to have a snack. You're no longer in charge of your day. You eat when they tell you to eat. You go out when they tell you you can go out. And in fact, Yusuf celebrated his 21st birthday in prison. If you want to call that celebrating. I wished I could have been at a bar or somewhere getting drunk, but I had bought myself an ice cream and some, like, some honey buns or something off a commissary. I forgot what I got. And since Yusuf isn't from Kentucky, he doesn't have family or friends to come visit him. And his phone time is limited. They have a thing called J-Pay. You know how you go to Redbox and they got the, like a kiosk that's set up right there? It's like a smaller version of that on the mountain on the wall. It's like text message, but it's not as fast as a text message. To us, it is the best the texting you're going to get. Because you can get in. When you log in, you got 15 minutes. But after that, you got to wait 30 minutes to log back in. Now, there are also things you can do in prison. There's workout equipment, there's classes. Some prisons even have Xboxes. But prison isn't meant to be enjoyable. And in fact, Yusuf told me that on an average day, he'd spend about 18 hours in a cell. So imagine only being let out of your bedroom for six hours each day for 10 years. This was going to be Yusuf's life. And so in prison, Yusuf actually ends up picking up a new hobby. I mean, in my first couple of years, I read a lot, to be honest with you. I read a lot of books. So Yusuf picks up reading as a new hobby, but what Yusuf didn't pick up actually was new behavior outside of that. And in prison, everything about the environment was different, but inside, he was still the same hot-headed youth. It'd be count time, and I didn't want to get off the phone. I'm talking on the phone during count, so I'm telling them, nah, my phone call's not over with. So they'll get to, you know, try to tell me to get off the phone. I cuss them out or something, and they'll hang up the phone, and I get in their face and argue, and that's like three or four write-ups right there. You know, one of the critiques of the justice system is that it's not really restorative, that folks go, they serve the time, they get out, but that we're not actually cultivating any kind of restorative process for them. Here's Judge Amber Wolf again. 
So I think we're making those steps towards a more restorative system. It's just not adequate yet. And it's not, um, it's just not where we need to be. But a big part of that problem is money and facilities. And we just don't have adequate places, especially for mental health treatment. And so the facilities she's referring to are drug rehab and mental health programs. And so if we can't find something other than incarceration to fix the problem for the time being, incarceration it will be. So as Christians, we look at it and we are thankful that there's laws and legal systems, but we also know that there's limitations to those systems. And for us as Christians, that's also why we put so much hope in our belief that Christ is the one who truly transforms character. But despite the inadequacies of the system, there are some who still believe change is possible. And one of those people is Darren Ashley. When I get there, you know, you got to go in through the guard gate and, you know, and they search your car and then you go in and you got to take everything out of your pockets and you run through a metal detector. Then they pat you down after that. So Darren actually goes into prisons and does what is called prison ministry. He actually works for an organization called Prodigal Ministries, which will be important later. If you've never gone to a prison before, it can be kind of intimidating. You still feel like almost like you're a criminal, but uh, yeah, it's kind of eerie feeling. Then you go in, they lock you into the room. And you got to wait for everybody to come. So you're sitting in a room by yourself and you're locked in. You can't get out. You got you to gotta call for an officer to get out. Even though it can be a bit unnerving, going into the prison systems, it's, it's really important for Darren. And that's because he also used to be an inmate. And it was prison ministry that actually changed his life. And I'm sitting down here in Jefferson County Jail, and uh, these little boys are having Bible study in the front of the jail cell every night. And uh, I decided to go up and check out what it was. And... Went up, hung out one night, and ate all the good food they had, and was getting ready to go back to my bunk. And I had a little 18-year-old black boy look at me and tell me, he says, you know, Darren, he still loves you. And uh, this night, my night changed. So Darren had this incredible experience in prison where he came to faith in Christ because of this prison ministry. But the reality is that even though his background makes him aware of the need of other prisoners to also have that opportunity, it also really makes it hard for Darren to get back into the prisons as a volunteer. Well, he fill out an application first, and uh, then you send it in to the warden, and he does all the background check. But, you know, being a felon, it's hard to get back in. There's been a couple times they turned me down. And because of his history as a felon, right now Darren's only allowed into two prisons, and that's just twice a year. But one of those prisons happens to be where Yusuf is. I met Yusuf on the yard at North Point Prison. Yusuf is pretty cool because he's a, he's a young kid and he's got so much life ahead of him. So one weekend, uh, Darren and some other volunteers, they come in to do a Bible study and Yusuf actually decides to go. Yeah, I went because everybody, whenever something different in prison, you know, people are going to go. Whether they actually want to go hear a message or want to see what's going on or who's coming in here or what. So especially if it's going to be on a summer, sunny summer day, it might as well go out there. Ain't nothing else to do. Sit in the cell. So I went. Well, after that Bible study, another man on Darren's team notices that Yusuf reads a lot. So he goes up to Yusuf and he gives him a Bible. Up until now, when it came to religious matters, Yusuf had actually only read the Quran. I, see, I was born initially born and raised as a Muslim, and I've always had some type of uh, belief in a higher being, you know. But since he's got 18 hours in the cell to kill, Yusuf gives the Bible a shot. I read the Bible and I got to read them. Like, hold on, it just didn't make sense. Like, how is the Quran going agree with the Bible, but contradict it at the same time. It just, it didn't want to make sense to me. I think for a lot of folks, when they think about people in prison, prisoners are just very simpletons and that they're not going to think about deep things. 
you know, they're not, they're only thinking about survival. Like they're almost like animals. I would think, man, they're here. So there's something animalistic about them. There's something subhuman. And if you believe the Bible and you believe what it teaches, you know that that's just not the case. Like we're all created in God's image. Book of Ecclesiastes says that eternity is built into every human being's heart. So every human being at some level is wondering about the future, wondering about death, wondering, is there really a God? In prison, when your life slows down and you're shut behind bars and you've got all this time to think about it, that like goes to a higher level now. Honestly, Jesse, people who are in prison are in the right position for Christians to minister to. And, you know, Yusuf is clearly a testimony to the fact that like he was thinking very deep, profound theological thoughts, very deep, profound existential thoughts. I don't know. I just started feeling conviction about things. So Yusuf starts thinking about all these types of things so that actually by the time that Darren visited again a year later, Yusuf had actually become a follower of Christ. But despite the fact that Darren could only visit once a year, his relationship with Yusuf was far from over. So fast forward yet another year, Darren makes his yearly visit, and Yusuf has some more good news. And Yusuf was supposed to pro out. He was uh, excited. So Yusuf had taken advantage of the different programs offered in the prison, and he had been able to cut his sentence in half. He was on his final year in prison, so he had been making post-prison arrangements. We partnered with another guy, and he's got a transitional home up in Indianapolis. Then uh, we found out that in Kentucky, Kentucky won't let you parole out of state. So when he got out, Yusuf was set on going to this transitional facility in Indiana. Folks from there would visit his prison, and he'd made several friends there. But when he was released, he would still be on parole for several months. And being on parole meant that he had to stay in Kentucky where his family didn't live, his friends didn't live. Well, remember the name of the organization that Darren works for? It's called Prodigal Ministries. And it just so happens to be a transitional program in Kentucky. So Darren sets up Yusuf with a place to stay with Prodigal Ministries for when he gets out, which Yusuf thinks is going to be another few weeks. But the next day at this pre-release class, the teacher actually had some really exciting news for Yusuf. She said, it's all I got approved. You're good to go. I said, I can go home. She's like, yeah. I'm like, so you mean to me I can pack my stuff up and I'm good to go? She's like, yeah. I said, oh, okay, let me call and get me over here. I was happy. It was a whole lot of emotions. I went to the bathroom and cried and everything. Thank God and everything. I was happy. Oh, my goodness. You've been locked up, put away. Life has dramatically changed. And you've got your mindset. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be able to get out. And then it's like, wow, early release. Yeah, that'd be an amazing moment. And I'm impressed with Darren. The fact that you can only go to a prison twice a year. It's like most people would just give up on a ministry like that. I only can do something twice a year. What impact can I have? And he's like, nah, like the Lord can use my twice a year. Well, and the fact that he was faithful to it. And because he was faithful to it, he was there at the exact moment that Yusef really needed him. In that providential moment, there was, there was a moment of opportunity. Yusef needed to know, what am I going to do about life after prison? And because Darren was faithful, that moment was very clear and made available to Yusuf. That'll preach. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing story. Okay, so thanks to Darren, Yusuf moves into Prodigal Ministries' transitional house. And he was, once again, he's a free man. But just being free is still not the end of the story. Most of our clients... It's not their first rodeo. They have been in prison more than once because recidivism rate, the return to prison rate, is uh, very high. Next, 
Navigating life after prison. Stay with us. Hi, this is Brad from Asher, Kentucky. I made an impact on people who've been incarcerated by serving for a summer at Love Thy Neighborhood. To experience your social justice internship from Christian community, visit lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today. Welcome back to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Jamal Williams. Today's episode is where the gospel meets incarceration. So Yusuf has been released from prison after serving five years and has gone to live in a transitional house through prodigal ministries. The reality is when folks get out of prison, especially if they've been in for a long time, they're not going back to life the way it was when they first went in. And because the outside world has continued on without you, transitioning back into society It's a challenge. Here's Prodigal Ministries Executive Director Jennifer Parton. Oftentimes when people are released from prison, they've lost all of their identification, clothing, everything. It's just all taken. And these aren't the only factors. Another reason this transition period is so crucial is because of what we call recidivism. Recidivism is the rate at which former inmates reoffend and end up back behind bars. Each year, approximately 650,000 people are released from state and federal prison, and about 9 million people are released from jail. And within three years of release, about two-thirds, 67.8% of these people, they're rearrested. And to add to that, the most recent data in Kentucky says that 40.7% of inmates released in 2013 were reincarcerated within two years. That's almost half. You know, so we talked earlier about the fact that the culture in prison is so dynamically different than the culture outside of prison. So when somebody's been in prison for a long time and then suddenly they're no longer in prison, it's just very, very difficult to adjust. And so one of the goals of Prodigal Ministries is to help folks cope and adjust to life outside of prison. While we're important is we try to learn different ways of dealing with old stuff. It's easy to default back to something you're familiar with. I do it every Monday when I try to eat differently, you know. And some, and I, I think many of our men and women have often, they live in chaos. And so when things aren't chaotic, there might be some uncertainty there. So then they begin to create chaos. In fact, we found out just how important this is. So producer Rachel Zabo was actually with Jennifer at one of their transitional houses. And while Rachel was talking with Jennifer, another woman named Sarah was there. And Sarah is what's called a client advocate. She acts sort of like a landlord, making sure things with the house are in order and people transitioning into the house have everything they need. And during our interview with Jennifer, suddenly Sarah chimed in. Well, Sarah is working on getting this house organized. I can tell you, I, I was in prison almost six years. Do you want me to do it? Do you want to? If you're comfortable with it. Yeah, if you, if you don't mind to you share. You want to come over? Yeah. So you were saying, um, do you edit this? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. No pressure. Okay. No pressure. Your, we'll your you question list. was, uh, what happens to their stuff? Yeah. Like, I, I was the first person here um, 13 years ago when the house opened in 2005, and I did almost six years, and all of my stuff was just given away and donated. So Sarah served six years in prison, leaving behind two children and a three-bedroom house in southern Indiana, complete with barns and horses. But since her children couldn't manage the property themselves, everything was just given away. 
like literally everything. Her life had basically been erased. So by the time Sarah was released, all she had was what was on her body. I just had a white t-shirt and a pair of gray shorts and some brand new white tennis shoes that they gave me and a garbage bag with some papers and a Bible. That's all I had. It wasn't about going for me going back into a bad situation. There was just no situation to go to. I just literally had a white t-shirt and gray shorts and tennis shoes. But just like Yusuf, Sarah had also learned about prodigal ministries while in prison. So when she was released, that's where she came. They had an open house. And uh, there was one other lady had come and we had a house mother. And then the community came to welcome us, to meet us. I remember there was some people that donated clothes to me. And then they took all these pictures of me, which I'm glad maybe don't exist anymore. I don't know where they are. My white t-shirt coming. I had to go back out the door. Picture coming in the door. Picture here. And you're just like, there's scripture on the floor. And there's just, it was just, I was like, oh, I'm safe. And the transitions that were hardest for Sarah weren't the big things you typically think of, like finding a job, that that is hard. Sarah more remembers having trouble with the little things, things that you and I probably don't even think twice about, things like sleeping. First of all, when I went to sleep, it was very quiet. They said, what, did anything bother you? And I said, nothing bothered me, it's just so quiet. Because you're used to, you get accustomed to, I guess, all kinds of noise and just terrible conversations, banging, clanging. She had trouble with things like eating. You eat things that you were hungry for that cause you to gain weight, you know, so that's like one of the things you have to keep focused on. Um, Having a little bit of the things you felt deprived from, but still, you know, you don't want to bust out of the clothes that were just given to you. I mean, prisoners even look forward to things like having their own underwear that's not from the prison. Yeah, I went to Walmart because uh, prison underwear is not good. Not, you know, the elastic isn't, not mine, but also has your number on it. But I mean, if you just can't just have one bra or one pair of underwear, you know, you have to need a little bit more than that. So I was really excited to get something a little more supportive. One thing Sarah pointed out is that it's very easy for folks who are released from prison to become hoarders because they live with nothing and now they're able to have things again and they don't want to lose any of it. It's like part of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's an emotional consequence from just only having a few prison clothes. But I just remember all of a sudden I had so much stuff and still to this day, I have so much. I mean, I just have things to still give away. And um, so that's one of the things we try to help people with is no hoarding. Yeah, but it's not the stuff that really helps, you know, in the long run. I mean, we need things to be able to survive, but really it's the people, it's the relationships in our lives that we so desperately need. And folks in prison, they're the exact same way. They often have no relationships or very, very broken ones. And that's really what Yusuf needed. Uh, He needed a relationship with God, but also just healthy relationships with other people. Because as we often say, relationships change lives. They do. The Lord created us to model him and um, and who he is as a as a triune being to be in deep relationships. And you cut that off from a person and put them in a situation where there are uh, really just broken relationships, man, they really can do a work on you. Yo, so how's Yusuf doing now? Give me an update. Well, today Yusuf is actually doing really well. Uh, he recently moved out of Prodigal Ministries Transitional House. He's now living on his own. And he is definitely enjoying his freedom. Oh, man, let me tell you. I've been to the movies. I can't do that in prison. 
I've been to the mall. I've ate, eaten out at restaurants, but I ain't never been like Applebee's, Red Lobster, TJ Fridays, Texas Roadhouse. I back I'm gonna make my way to those. I know it's time. People, those people got prison. They try to rush and do things too quick. Ah, right, you don't enjoy it like that. You gotta give time, stretch it out, enjoy it. So at the time of his interview, Yusuf was still on probation, but when he gets off probation soon, he plans to go live with his dad in California. Uh, he's going to use the skills that he learned actually in prison. And one of the programs that he completed was a food health and safety class, and he hopes to make good use of that. Like right now, I work at a restaurant. So when I get to California and I start, you know, working in other restaurants, it'll give me like, oh, you'd be surprised who you, who you meet. Man, you got this? Oh, well, they can use such and such over here and... I might end up working at SeaWorld, making, doing something. Well, what I love about Yusuf's story and Sarah's story is that it humanizes their experience. And so often when we hear of people going to prison, we just don't see the humanity behind it, the, the longing, the brokenness. We, maybe we hear about the physical needs, but we don't get to hear about the relational aspect of it. And what's amazing, again, about Matthew 25 is that Jesus identifies with these people. He says, when you visit the least of these, you visit me. And as Christians, I think we often forget about this, that these are the people that Jesus uh, would most quickly identify with because he himself knows what it's like to be in prison. He himself knew what it was like to be embarrassed, to be stripped of everything, to to not have any underwear, any clothes that he can call his own, to be under the control of another person. And he's able to identify with, with our weaknesses, with the weaknesses of a prisoner. Could you imagine what the world would think if Christians were known for being those people that are always visiting prisoners, those people that both uphold the justice system, that we believe in righteous judgment, but also we're known for incredible acts of mercy. We're here to remind you the Lord has not forgotten about you, even as you are here in prison. They need to be loved. Most of them in prison come from broken families, and they don't know what love is. And uh, that kind of love changes them. If you would like to learn more about Prodigal Ministries, you can visit their website at prodigalky.org. To hear previous episodes of this podcast, visit lovethyneighborhood.org slash podcast. Special thank you to our interviewees for this episode, Yusuf Smith, Amber Wolf, Darren Ashley, Jennifer Parton, and Sarah Williams. Our senior producer and host is Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Jamal Williams. Jamal was featured in episode one of this podcast where the gospel meets racial reconciliation. You can check that out at lovethyneighborhood.org. Our producer, technical director, editor, and homeschool nerd is Rachel Zabo. Additional editing by Janelle Dawkins. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, and Daniel Birch. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting lovethyneighborhood.org. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills. If you have appreciated and enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes where you leave us a review 
That is how other people actually find us. It actually helps our rankings in iTunes. It makes a much bigger difference than you realize. So please head over to iTunes right now and uh, leave us a review. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise.